Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. We have Andrew Stamper today rejoining us to not quite complete our best of film series. Today we're delving into my number two film of all time, No Country for Old Men. This will be no podcast for old men. <laughs> does that ex- does that exclude both of us at this point? Are I think, we I, yeah, are I, we considered old yet? I don't know. I, 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 we're definitely on the border. <laughs> ah, perfect. Uh, g- good choice of the word border there, uh, particularly because this film takes place along the Texas Mexico border. So that's an apropos joke there. But uh, thanks for joining me for this uh, podcast. As always, thank you very much for having me back. Absolutely. So we'll just dive right in by going through a quick sort of plot synopsis just to bring everyone up to speed who hasn't seen this amazing film. Um, So we have our, I guess, one of our protagonists, perhaps, Llewellyn Moss, played by Josh Brolin, is deer hunting, stumbles upon a a bloodbath, essentially, that involves, I guess, a drug deal that's gone wrong. He eventually tracks down a case of money, $2.4 million, I believe, and decides to take that money. In doing so, he delves into a world he doesn't quite understand and is tracked by, I think, one of the most incredible villains we've seen the last 20 to 30 years, portrayed by Javier Bardem, and then is Anton Shakur. So Shakur is um, hired by... a one of the aggrieved parties to track down uh, the money and retrieve it and so forth. We also have Tommy Lee Jones portraying Sheriff Ed Bell. He's the, I guess, the county sheriff where this grisly scene takes place and tries to intervene on and help out Moss to some degree as, as much as possible while sort of in being, a, I guess, a lead sort of investigator combined with a DEA and I forget what, the, what other agency and so we follow this sort of cat and mouse game between Shigur and Moss. Eventually, Moss is killed by another group that is going after these this money. And then we sort of, in the, I guess, denouement of the film, we have um, Shigur ends up sort of, I guess, killing Moss's wife and sort of escapes into the unknown to some degree. And then we have... Uh, the sheriff Bell reflecting on that with, you know, sort of a sadness. He ends up retiring due to the events, the circumstances surrounding this particular case. And then we have sort of a an open-ended ending to this film, which left, I think, a lot of people unsatisfied in many respects. It just Because I think you start out this film, I think the first two acts are at sort of a break. You know, they're very psychologically taught, we're in this super, you know, thriller that tension, everyone, you know, everything is on a knife's edge, so to speak. But then the third act sort of slows things down. We don't get the, you know, tremendous confrontation between Shigur and Moss that the film has been leading to throughout. And Moss is uh, actually killed off screen by, I guess, the other party that has been trying to retrieve the stolen drug money. And then we wind up with uh, Sheriff Bell reflecting in his retirement on some dreams he had that involved his father, who was also a sheriff in Plano. So th- that's sort of the broad plot strokes, which I don't think the plot is necessarily the most important element of this film. I think, for me, the most important thing about this film 
as sort of the interesting philosophical ideas that are sort of interrogated by both Moss or Moss Sugar and ultimately Sheriff Bell, who I think actually might be our true protagonist. Yeah. A lot of critics have, have kind of claimed that, and I think that's probably a fair assessment. So, uh, what is your sort of overall take on on the film, Andrew? That's all right. No, <laughs> um, no, no, co- no country for old men is um, certainly at the at the pinnacle of everything Coen Brothers in terms of whether um, everything that they've been they've been working on for the past shoot four decades now, I guess you know they've been they've been making films. I think this one is just their their opus, obviously, you know, uh, based on the, the Cormac McCarthy uh, novel of the same name, but fantastic in, in all aspects of this movie. It, you know, if it wasn't on your list, it very well could have been on mine. Um, just, just brilliant, brilliant film, uh, wonderful narrative. Um, very beautiful to look at. Uh, the Texas landscapes are, 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 are great the, the 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 themes that are that are con- constantly kind of uh, thrown at us and the various uh, points in the film um, how you have these three different narratives that we're that we're watching and it, it, it's really fun because at no time do any two of those protagonists really occupy the same camera at the same time uh, or yeah, in the same point. space which is really really obviously you've got this kind of showdown halfway through the film between Shigur and Llewellyn Moss, but you don't really ever see them actually looking at it. I mean, it's dark and they're kind of going all over this, you know, this small little, uh, border town. And, and, um, yeah, so it's really fascinating. And of course you've got the, the quintessential beautiful dialogue that the Coen brothers are so famous for, where they do a great job of really understanding their world and how these characters talk and uh, their own forms of um, philosophies, uh, wittiness. Um, I mean, it, it's just, it's just beautiful. I mean, I, I can't sing enough praises for this film, but yeah. Um, just, just fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, I, I don't know where have you been for the past 15 years or whenever, 10 years, 12 years, whatever it is. But this is one of the, one of the greats right here. Have you ever read any of McCarthy's actual novels or, or works? I did read No Country for Old Men, but it's difficult, I think, for me, especially having seen the film first, it was difficult to desegregate the film narrative and the novel itself, especially because they're, you know, the Coens are very painstakingly, um, you know, true to the original text mm-hmm. for the, by and large part. There are some small deviations here and there, but overall... It's essentially the film, you know, the film is a, a pretty close to a word for word. Yeah. I mean, recreation. It, it's very, very similar. But to answer your original question, you know, I, I took a Coen Brothers class, uh, a couple of them in, in <laughs> college. But uh, so, I mean, this, I, I, I read No Country for Old Men. I mean, that, that's that's really what, what I know of Cormac McCarthy. Obviously, I'm familiar with his name, but I'm not going to go ahead and... Um, make claims that I'm the most well-read uh, novelist uh, in the in, in, in the world by any means. Certainly. Um, I would definitely recommend, I mean, he's an incredible writer. I The Road, right? Uh, he also did The Road. Um, 
all the all the pretty horses. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. He also did uh, Blood Meridian is sort of his opus, and that's part of this border trilogy of which No Country for Old Men, and I think there's one more novel that he wrote that's part of that trilogy is essentially. Uh, he also did a, a lesser known. Fil- he actually wrote the screenplay for a lesser known film called uh, The Counselor, which I think lays bare a lot more. Like Cormac McCarthy is definitely, you know, very nihilistic in terms of the themes. Yeah, ex- extremely, extremely bleak view of the world, and it's really hammered home. I think very didactically in okay. in The Counselor, but I think more skillfully and handled in No Country for Old Men and we're not really necessarily beat over the head with the themes, with these long monologues, the way that they uh, take place in something like The Counselor. Mm-hmm. But I would definitely recommend getting into his novels, which particularly Blood Meridian is just incredible. His prose style is just otherworldly. He reminds me, it's honestly kind of funny due to the sort of the nature of his work that he reminds me of sort of okay. There's the the book that Nietzsche wrote, "Thus Spake Zarathustra," and in that book, Zarathustra is this sort of prof, prophetic figure that is relating this narrative to Nietzsche, and I sort of see this parallel between Zarathustra and that setting and McCarthy. He feels like this old biblical, Old Testament biblical kind of prophet in some degree, and whenever you encounter his prose, I think, you know what I mean, there's a lot of biblical allusions there, there's a lot of philosophical allusions, although it's hard to say, you know, how well-read McCarthy is, but he definitely seems intimately knowledgeable about philosophical themes, whether or not he is, you know, a student of philosophy, or whether this just happens to be, he's just that spot-on in terms of his awareness. Right on. But uh, let's let's start by delving into the acting in this film. Of course, Javier Bardem won Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Chigurh, which I think is obviously well-deserved. A very understated performance, you know what I mean? It's the restraint that he shows, and obviously the Coens have, I think, a lot, of, a lot to do with the restraint that's showed by the character, because it's e- easily would be, it would be very easy to take this character into sort of a campy mm-hmm. um, territory. And he really displays, I mean, extreme, extreme, extreme restraint for such a, you know, sort of psychopathic yeah, killer that absolutely just cold-bloodedly just is killing people left and right without any sort of even emotion on yeah. his face or any sort of regret or there's no, you know, I mean, he doesn't wrestle with any morality. Mm-mm. He's like the the shark from Jaws, but an actual like human being, you know, just pure, just just pure evil, um, just with without any hesitation. Just if you're in his path, you're it's bad news for you, right? And he's not loud or bombastic with any of this. He just is cold, calculated, mm-hmm. cold blooded, just does people in it's part of his you know what i mean just like it's you know part of his day job to some degree yeah and i was talking with a friend about about uh shigeru and everything and um just some of the things that that he does and my friend put it very very like um uh succinctly and he's like yeah he, he has a code i mean this is really what it comes down he he lives by a certain code and and that 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 
code, quite frankly, is just, you know, killing. Um, but what's great is, I mean, and we'll get into different things, but where it can, you know, with the, with the idea of like the coin toss and everything, the, the Texaco station where, um, it actually goes in favor of the, the, uh, the, the cashier, like yeah, the manager. unwitting, yeah. unwitting cashier, friendo. Yeah. Friendo. We'll call him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, the film opens up ultimately. So if sugar is getting arrested by the sheriff mm-hmm. and, um, ends up that we have a very gruesome start to the film, which there's not a lot of dialogue, which I, I love is just sort of brilliant. And you know what I mean? It's, it's again, show don't tell what the screenplay is just mm-hmm. brilliantly done because sugar ends up attacking the uh, sheriff that arrested him, choking him to death with his handcuffs on the floor very aggressively. And they're sort of thrashing around on the floor and eventually the chains from the handcuffs, I guess, sever an artery in the sheriff's neck, and we have, like, blood squirting out, mm-hmm. and he passes away. And that just sets us up with Sugar as this just force of nature, Yeah, ultimately. Uh, maybe a good stand-in for, for just the Grim Reaper or death itself personified mm-hmm. in many regards. I love that scene. In in two ways. One, obviously, the look that Sugar has as he's killing oh, yeah, killing this guy. Insane. But just one of like the very very subtle aspects, maybe not so subtle, but <laughs> as he's choking yeah. this guy. To death. But is just seeing the kind of the um, the sole of the boots, yes. uh, like scuffing yes. on the on the tile, is awesome because you just see from all the thrashing, all the all like the the boot scuffs on the ground. It, it's just. It's just just beautiful. <laughs> it's a beautiful murder, I guess you could say. In <laughs> Mayhem, that. yeah. It's just, but it, it's great, and it does. It lets you know um, exactly who the fuck this guy is. Absolutely, that ins- crazed look on his face, and yeah, just the insane amount of scuff marks mm-hmm. from the boots from the struggle. Again, just a great example of show don't tell. And there's not a you know not a lot of dialogue there to really set up sugar. It's all action. I mean, there's no ominous music involved, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of one of the most impressive things about the film overall is just the lack of diet, you know what I mean, non-diegetic music, particularly with this being a thriller, you know what I mean? You th- think of something like a Hitchcock, mm-hmm. think of yeah. something like Psycho without that string accompaniment. Mm-hmm. What? How do you portray that, you know what I mean, that tension yeah. without relying on music? Cause music and image together when they're combined can be so extremely powerful and really banal visuals can just feel can be taken to an entirely different level mm-hmm. with music you know what i mean and there's no john williams score here to let us know when there's an emotional swell or when to be afraid mm-hmm. or really to build that tension it's all action there's sparse dialogue, especially in the sort of cat and mouse portion of the chase right? with Bardem and, and Moss, which I think is just thinking back as, you know, someone who's dabbled enough in film to know that how powerful music can can be with accompanied with image. It's so impressive to look back and see that they really did not rely on any of that, in a, especially in the genre, the thriller genre in particular, which will typically rely on some type of music, you know, a lot of string accompaniment or these really dissonant tones to kind of build that that tension. Mm-hmm. So 
any thoughts on Bardem's performance specifically aside from from that? I mean, <sighs> uh, <laughs> how much time do we have? I right. mean, uh, I mean, it, it's a. I mean, it is an Oscar-worthy performance. I mean, purely just in every facet, every every second that he's on camera, the his performance across the board is, is wonderful. Um, I, I just mentioned the little Texaco scene, but I'll go back to it a little bit. I mean, we're not necessarily I'm not really going to go ahead and quote the dialogue, but just the you can see how irritated he is by the by the Texaco guy. He just doesn't understand him and doesn't really like him and. Basically, or I'm just going to go ahead and freaking kill this guy if the coin says so, you know, you know, and and when it turns out like that, the Texaco is going to survive. And then like the whole idea of it's like, don't put the, you know, the, the coin back in your pocket. It'll just go, you know, with the with the rest of your coins. And uh, and then it'll just be, you know, like an, uh, shit, what's the exact another one? coin? Yeah, but it'll just be which it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that that pause that he has between it'll just be uh, just another coin. And then he like raises his eyes and just kind of has like this kind of like. Yeah, he no. actually, he kind of, he doesn't quite smile, but yeah. he has sort of this very, uh, you know what I mean, friendly sort of kind of joke yeah. at the end after this just incredibly taut scenario yep. where, you know, it's like the audience is like, oh shit, this guy's, you know, this guy doesn't even realize who the fuck he's dealing with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's dealing with literally the angel of death and he's just like, well, fuck it. If I've got to call this coin toss, I'm going with heads yep. and he comes out on tops. Yeah, and, miraculously, and then just see that, like that, yeah, that kind of smirk, whatever it is, and then he's when he's like, yeah, which it is, and then <laughs> little uh, raise of the eyes, and just walks on out. I'm like, all right, just give the guy a freaking Oscar with that little small like minute of camera work. But it, yeah, Javier Bardem. I mean, there are, everybody in this movie is amazing, and it obviously starts with Javier Bardem, and uh, loved it, loved it, loved it. I love the entire cast. One other minute detail about that scene, which I really like the subtlety of this and just the the Coens taking just a moment to let the scene breathe is I think he has he buys like a peanuts or something. He buys like some, he has like peanuts or cashews. I think it might be cashews, but yeah. And he kind of crunches up the the cellophane wrapping and then mm-hmm. we see a shot of it sort of like extending out after mm-hmm. it's been kind of crunched up. It's like going trying to regain its shape yep something about that moment just really underscores the the insane tension like the banality of this rapper shot just i don't know juxtaposed against this really taut scene mm-hmm. where they are again the audience knows that you know this guy's insane the character has no clue what the fuck he's even the depths yep. of, <laughs> of insanity he's even dealing with although i think he begins to gain some yeah some is like you know we we gotta i gotta close uh yeah yeah i gotta get the fuck out of here yeah you don't know what you're talking about (laughs) um yeah so just to wrap up everything um that javier bardem does in this movie is pure pure gold and that haircut in particular i think really (laughs) really sells yeah Obviously, I mean, the movie takes place in 1980, but I don't know what era that hair is actually out of. I mean, it's just his own whatever. I don't I don't know what Anton Chigurh's uh, hair is supposed to be. Right. I don't remember from the book the description. I don't think they quite descri- – it's just an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Something that really stood out, I think, in the look of him. But also that, that denim jacket that he's sporting, uh, i got to say, that, that denim jacket is – pretty fucking fire and he's rocking <laughs> it's pretty dope 
could uh, pull it off in, t in today's fashion. So, But uh, moving on to our cast, we have Josh Brolin, I think. It's hard to picture anyone else in the role of Moss. He so embodies that character. And in going through the special features on the Blu-ray, the Coens were so thankful that they found someone who had the ability to portray this guy, Moss, mm -hmm. so authentically. And uh, hearing Brolin talk about he spent time on a ranch growing up as a kid, so he had a little bit of personal experience to draw from. And, man, he just really pulls off the sort of stoic, um, capable, yet fully Texan yeah. <laughs> version that uh, of this person, of this person, Llewellyn Moss, who was a v Vietnam veteran and is currently a uh, a welder, I guess, mm -hmm. for trade. But damn, he was he was so good, and I absolutely agree. It's hard to picture anyone else being able. I can't think of for the life of me anyone else that would be able to fit that role. Yeah, quite as well. Just mentioned with like the uh, the welding scene with uh with him and Woody Harrelson uh, in the hospital. Just yeah, another hilarious. Yeah, scene. just them going back and forth. But anyway, we're talking about uh, Berlin right now. But when you just mentioned the welder, it just reminded me of that scene. Yeah, because like uh, Harrelson as Carson Wells is like Mig Tig. What about what about cast iron? He's yeah. like, hey, <laughs> yeah. I fucking said I could weld. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can do anything. God damn it, Don't fucking doubt me. But yeah. Pure, uh, you know, Brolin, outstanding. Mm -hmm. I think this was his first film since uh, he played in uh, The Goonies, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's not that. It hasn't sure? been that long, really. I think it might have been. This like, was like, like his, yeah. Like, I seriously, like think close this to thirty years. I, I honestly think so. I cannot think of another film like, that he was in. in if, that's, the, if that's true, in my brain has just exploded. <laughs> I think this this pretty much reinvigorated his whole career. I mean, that's why he is in, you know, he's playing Thanos in the MCU and is in Deadpool as Cable. Absolutely, this like jump started his career. Okay, all right. I, I, I'm not. Sure. I'm not. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just. I'm blown away it, if that's true. It's pretty crazy. Um, but I'm. I'm like ninety percent confident that that is wow a fact. Wow, way to go, Bran. <laughs> right. How hilarious that he's brand too, especially given like the Game of Thrones context to the net, to that name. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I also want to give it up, just random aside here, for that pit bull, the pit bull that swims after. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about like the uh, the, <laughs> the one, one that, that was dead. Yeah, I thought you were talking about like um, Garrett Dillahunt's uh, "Oh Hell's Bells," even shot the dog, <laughs> which is another great moment. Yeah, but yeah, the dog swims after. Llewellyn after he dives in the river and what is it up. with you and like dead dogs and movies I know, man I, I don't know I just, come on <laughs> you're cut off right I don't think there are any dead dogs in my next film <laughs> pretty, we'll find pretty out pretty sure but yes. yeah no like uh but yeah pour one out for that uh for that pit bull and it just uh just just jumps right on in that water and just swims and I mean his his portrayal of those like of swimming was, I mean, you he, can't, you cannot teach that. No, that I mean, is all instinct. Yeah, yeah. it is literally instinct. <laughs> some of the funny roles, though, too, were uh, just some of these people, like Llewellyn's. I don't know if it was the landlord or if she, like, if he was renting that trailer house, oh, or if she was just sort of the, you the know, sassy I landlord the, type. Yeah, lady. yeah, that was fucking great too, especially 
we've been introduced to Sugar as a cold-blooded fucking killer mm-hmm. in this scene with the sheriff. And then he, you know, comes to Llewellyn's trailer looking for him. He's not home, obviously. He's taken off with uh, with his wife. And the kind of uh, older lady definitely, like, gives him a lot of sass. She's yeah, like, no, n- I, yeah. I can't give no information. Yeah, she... I, I just told you. She's not fucking yeah. having it. Yeah, and again, I, I go back to kind of like he has this this code where he's kind of like, all right, I think I, I kind of respect this. All right, and I'll go ahead and find another way. Although, which to me is all so weird and just the who he decides is he can kill. And mm-hmm. I, I don't understand. And maybe that's the part of it is, you know, we're not supposed to understand this code that he lives by. I almost see him as more of... Um, sort of this angel of death who's like, you know, maybe it's just not your time. Mm-hmm. Because he also, he doesn't kill the uh, gas station attendant due to the coin toss. But then later on, he ends up killing a couple of just passers-by to take their cars, right? Yeah, yeah he kills uh, the guy at the beginning when we when we first get that little... Yeah, he's got the... Uh, it's the thing that sort of protrudes out into your skull. Yeah, mm-hmm. and takes that gentleman's car. And then I think the guy with the chickens, right? The guy with the chickens. I mean, was just a good old boy, yep. Texan guy. Yep. Just like, well, what are you going? What you are you looking for? An airstrip? Or are you looking for an airport? Yeah, mm-hmm. who was just a good old dude trying to help him out. Like, has the jumper cables and is just yep. you know just like so authentic Texan, probably for that for that area and that era. Just amazing, and he just obviously winds up killing him because we see him rinsing out the bed of the truck later. Yep. <laughs> so it's just kind of, it's difficult to see. Is just like, what are the, what's the rules? Yeah. What, it, what are the rules for sugar when it comes to killing yeah, people? I don't know. Uh, but, because yeah, he, he kills quite a few people and then just the, the two that he leaves, or I guess, yeah, the, the two that come out still on top. We also have... Uh, very impressive work by Scottish actress Kelly McDonald as uh, Llewellyn Moss's wife. What's her name? Carly Jean? Yeah, Carly Jean. Very impressive. Since being Scottish, she really pulls off a West Texas accent pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Um, I think the highlight of the film, or her best scene, is towards the end with Sugar, where he shows up to kill her. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he says, "Your your husband, you know, I'm I'm doing this because I gave your husband my word." Mm-hmm. He's like, "Well, no, my husband's dead. What do you What do you mean?" He's like, "Yep. Well, I I have to I have to kill you. I told him I would, so I'm going to kill you." And then she, he tries to make her. I guess he tries to sort of get out of it by having her choose the make a choice on the coin toss, but she refuses and says, no, the fucking coin isn't part of this. It's all you. You're the one who is responsible, who has the opportunity to make a decision here. Not yep. that coin. I'm not going to choose. That's Leaving it up to chance is, is not a real choice for me. Yep. So if you want to kill me, then fucking own it and kill me. That's, don't use this coin as sort of the scapegoat to alleviate your responsibility. Yeah, exactly for my death. I'm just an innocent bystander. I don't have the money. My mother just died. She just buried her mother like the the previous scene, right? I mean, my husband's dead and now you want to fucking kill me? Then okay, I I what do I have? I work at fucking Walmart, okay? Go ahead. Give, give, do your worst, mm-hmm. you know, to some degree. 
And, you know, the novel does say that she did pass away. And there's a subtle nod to that as Sugar leaves the home. He does kind of wipe his boots. He can kind of checks his boots for blood. It's kind of like a recurring theme with him and boots and socks and his feet, essentially. So after he had killed like Woody Harrelson and like the blood is kind of like moving on the floor, you see him like lift up his boots so he doesn't get blood on his boots. So kind of like mirrors that and where he got blood on his boots and in, in, in that particular scene. So that's where he cleans them off. So yeah, he, she unfortunately definitely does die. Moving on to another sort of supporting role. You just mentioned Garrett Dillahunt <laughs> with the Hell's Bells. That his whole that whole scene between him and Tommy Lee Jones just assessing the crime scene, I thought was was just so brilliantly mm-hmm. done. Like so off not only was it authentically Texan in their vernacular and just the astuteness of these both of these guys, you know what I mean? You sort of wanna I think the you want to assume that these guys are sort of idiots, but they reveal very quickly that they're fairly sharp. Yeah. Um, in terms of being investigators, particularly Tom Lee Jones. Obviously, you can see he's experienced because he's identifying casings. You know, he's talking about ACPs here. Mm-hmm. We get a couple of 45 mags here. And then, you know, Garrett Dillahunt, too. He's like, you know, you know, this looks like, oh, wait, drug, drug deal gone bad. But these two gentlemen... They look to be upper management, so yep. he's like, okay, corral over here, and execution style over here. Yep. You know, what the, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> and it, it's something, because I, that there also reminded me a lot of the movie Fargo, where we are quick to initially minimize these people with these funky accents, right? I right. Mean, so in Fargo, you just had that, that kind of... Um, Was it Marge? Yeah, exactly. But Hey, Marge. The, you know, the, uh, where, where even they're assessing the crime scene where the, you know, um, in the beginning of the film without, I mean, I'm not going to really go on and on and on about Fargo, but they're assessing that crime scene and we, we find out, okay, they, they talk really funny and they're sw- from the small town, you know, nowhere America, but oh, okay. They, they are smart. They do have something compelling to, uh, to tell us so we can learn something from these people. And that's something that you find again in no country for old men with the partnership between Tommy Lee Jones and Garrett Delahunt's character is that, yeah, they, they're a couple small town people from nowhere, Texas, but they're pretty damn good at their job. You know, it's kind of an interesting aside, especially I think with Dillahunt in particular, as well as the DP that actually shot the film, Roger Deakins into, you know, this film came out in 2007. Also at the same time, that same year, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford came out as well, which Deacons also DP'd. So he actually Deacons had two nominations for best cinematography that year. Didn't win for either. <laughs> Did not win for either one. And I, if I'm not mistaken, Garrett Dillahunt was also in the assassination of Jesse James. That guy has been in so much. It wouldn't be surprising, especially if it is kind of like Western. I, um, what like Deadwood, right? Where he played yeah. two different characters on Deadwood. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I think you're right. I think he is in that as well. We also have uh, the comedic actor Stephen Root making a uh, cameo in this film, mm-hmm. or not a cameo, but I guess it's just a, a small role. Pretty much one one or two speaking scenes, two yeah. speaking scenes. Yeah, yeah. You see the scene with him and Woody Harrelson where we we learned. A, I mean, we 
it, it's a it's an interesting scene because we already know that Shigur is he's a bad dude. He's, he's a bad a, dude. He's a bad hombre. You know, uh, we we didn't necessarily need the Woody Harrelson comparable to what the bubonic plague. <laughs> the bubonic, yeah, I mean it's a Which great line. Great, yeah, great line. We don't necessarily need it, but now we're being introduced to this other kind of ruthless assassin. Uh, this this friendly gentlemanly type, you know, Woody Harrelson, but. And then the next scene we get with Steven Root is Sugar shooting him like in the neck or something. I don't know. With a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> That's when he's like, oh, he, he's a psychopath killer. <laughs> <laughs> the just whimsy of the way that Harrelson delivers mm-hmm. that line was great. Of course, he was also fantastic as Carson Wells. And just every scene he's in is pretty much pure gold. I Even think. when he knows he's... He's dying. You know, he's gonna like get killed here. You know, um, it's like I'm. You know, you don't have to do. That. I'm, I'm a you could just grader. you could just go home. I, I've got an ATM card. Like yep. he's trying to bargain with death, the angel of death, for his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Shigur's not having. It just fucking wastes him with that shotgun with this crazy silencer on it. Yeah, and then picks up the phone and speaks to Moss, which is <laughs> is Carson Wells there? Uh, not in the way that you mean. <laughs> which is really. F- us. That's so fucking sinister mm-hmm. and dark and creepy. Yep. Just menacing. Yeah. <laughs> Not in the way that you mean. Ooh, that kind of just, that's very haunting mm-hmm. to me. One of the many haunting, many haunting scenes in this film. Um, another kind of just random role here is we have Barry Corbin. Yep. As, I forget what the character's name is, but he only shows up at the end where uh, Sheriff Ed Bell goes to visit him, and he's he's the same actor. He was in Northern Exposure. Did I'm you glad ever, that he, did you glad, ever fuck yeah. with Northern Exposure? I loved Northern Exposure. Loved it. He was one of the best characters. He in was Norman Ex- in Northern Exposure as well. What was like? He had like one thing that he like recurrently like wore. I think it was like a NASA. Yeah, like he had like I think he had worked for NASA or something. It was like a hat randomly. or a shirt yeah. or something. I can't remember, but dude. Northern Exposure. I'm I'm so pissed off that I can't watch that on Netflix or like Hulu. I think. I mean, it's one of those shows that are like in the vault of television where you just can't get your hands on it right now. But, dude, are you kidding me? Like Doctor Fleischman. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, what I loved about Northern Exposure is you had Barry Corbin and John Corbett, right? Like, so you had two uh, actors with very similar names. It's kind of like the Dermot Mulroney and then Dylan McDermott, right? Uh, thing. <laughs> But of course, those two actors kind of look look similar. Where there's nothing similar about Barry Corman and John Corbett. But uh, fucking, what's great because I think he asked. So Ed Bell, aka Tommy Lee Jones, asked him, "Is that how, how old is this coffee?" He's like, "Well, you know, I I tend to make a fresh pot every week or so." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Um, he had a couple good lines in there, but like where he kind of assesses the. The world for for Tommy Lee Jones, which I think is just a really, really great line where he's like, uh, shoot, I actually wrote it down. Uh, what you got new? What you got ain't anything new. This country's. Hold on. What is it? I can't even read my own damn writing. Um, yeah, you, uh, you can't stop what what's coming. It ain't it ain't all waiting on you. That's that's vanity. So basically, we're just talking uh, to him about where. Tommy Lee Jones is talking about this changing world and it's like, you can't stop what's coming. You know, the, this country is already jacked up and it has nothing to do with you. And so I, 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 I like that little bit of dialogue. 
I think it also, it's in many ways a callback to that scene with Carly Jean and Ed Bell because she says, oh, he, you know, Moss can take all comers. <laughs> you know, he knows what's, or he can, something about what's coming or mm-hmm. maybe that, I forget who it is that says something about about what's coming. And was it she or Ed Bell? It's like, well, you, you don't, you don't always see what's coming. And that's, I think I might have fucked that scene up. Maybe, but like the... Shoot, I forgot where I was going with that either. But speak that just kind of like remind me, like you can't see what's coming, is where Sugar, we we see him. <laughs> it's kind of a, uh, almost like a, a Hitchcockian thing where like the first murder, you see him kind of free himself from the handcuffs and he walks right up to the, 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 the little deputy, um, you know, and he's right behind him or even Woody Harrelson when Woody Harrelson's going up the stairs and Sugar, you know, just casually comes up like right behind him. Let's go to your room. Yeah. It's just, you're like, fuck, I know I'm going to die now. Yeah. God like you just it. can't, can't turn your back on him. Right. Of course, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, we would, goes without saying a phenomenal mm-hmm. acting performance. Although how much of this is just Tommy Lee Jones being himself he was, uh, you know, he grew up, I think, in San Saba County, Texas, which I think is where, uh, listening to the special features, which is supposedly where Moss was from, and Brolin said that Tom Lee Jones was fond of reminding him of that fact, <laughs> which I think is pretty funny. I wonder what Jones would be like to work with in particular. You know, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he was roommates with Al Gore. <laughs> I don't know if it's well. true or not, right? but that's one is of those... Is that a fucking urban legend? That, exactly. It's like, I've heard that a billion times. You know, that and Al Gore created the internet. I mean, those are things <laughs> that I have heard multiple <laughs> times, but I don't know. Are these facts? Yeah. Are these, you know, alternative facts? We need like a Snopes uh, right? checker next to us as we're <laughs> going through this. Yeah, no shit. Now, I mean, we've reeled off a bunch of uh, actors and rightfully so, everybody's brilliant in it, but... Uh, can we go ahead and like give it up to Beth Grant as well? She's like the ultimate like character actress. This has been in a billion things where she plays uh, Kelly McDonald's mother oh, in yeah. this. She has the cancer. Do you uh, know how many people I know in, was it El Paso? <laughs> yeah. Zero, and she holds up zero. Yeah. yeah. And then she's like, she tells, I think the, one of the cartel Yeah, she basically gives her. up Llewellyn Moss, right? <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. She's like, I've never seen a Mexican in a suit before. Yeah. Just nailing the authenticity of... This person, it's like, I, I fucking have, as a lifelong Texan, I have met this fucking yeah. lady. So many, yeah. I've met her. I also met the lady at the other motel where um, he's like, remember Moss is trying to get the room, I guess, across from his original room. Oh, right, room yep. Because he knows, okay, they've, they're fucking waiting for me or something's up in my original room. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that that room's got two double beds. Yeah. Like she just can't, like she's so regimented. Like she, this is, there's like this orthodoxy of thought and you just mm-hmm. know there's so many, like I've met so many of these fucking people in small town Texas that just have like, their world is just this little small town bubble. Yeah. And any deviation from that is just un, almost uncomprehensible. And it can be in many ways, mm-hmm. which I thought was so funny. And just gave, you know, just made me appreciate this film so much more. Just overall, that the sassy lady that was Llewellyn's, um, you know, whatever landlord or whatever, right? Whatever she is, yeah. was. We'll call her yeah. a landlord. <laughs> All of those just really fucking sold it for me. Mm-hmm. Ate it up, loved it as a as a Texan. But moving on, uh, let's 
jump into cinematography, we have, I think, in my opinion, probably one of the best, if not the best, working DP in the industry right now, Roger Deakins. Yeah. Finally got an Oscar. <laughs> Obviously, this year, like I said, 2007, nominated for two fucking movies, which probably hurt him being nominated. He was yeah. so fucking good that he got nom- nominated for two films in the same year that probably ended up hurting him ultimately. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, achievement in cinematography went to Roger Ellswit for There Will Be Blood, which also, I mean, that's like, yeah. you know, picking between your favorite child. You know, it's like both beautifully shot films, both shot very close to one another. Both had been shot in, uh, it was outside of Marfa, actually, at the, concurrently, actually, mm-hmm. within miles of one another. We have two of the most amazing films of the last, you know, 20 years probably in production at the same time, coming out the same year, going head-to-head for, you know, best adapted screenplay, best picture, best director, best cinematographer. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. incredible. That was overall... I think 2007 might have been the best. It's probably the best year for film. Definitely since 2000, but maybe ever because you not only had. I'll take. I think I'll take 94. But yeah, I'm with. I'm. I'm with you. Let me. Let me. Uh, let me state my case here for you. Okay. Because we have not only do we have there will be blood, no country for old men. We also have Michael Clayton mm-hmm. this year. We have Juno, and I think there was also Atonement. Those were the five best picture nominees that year. Back whenever. It was limited to five, and all all any any one of those five could have won best picture. Um, I don't know if I'd say any one of those five could have won best screenplay, but definitely Michael Clayton. Looking back, I think Tony Gilroy uh, wrote that screenplay is looked back on as one of the best screenplays, or you know just a stand market you know landmark achievement. Because I'm pretty sure that was an original versus. There will be blood being sort of an adaptation, and definitely no country, obviously being an adaptation. So I always hear great things. I think even when you and I we attended, um, it was Vanessa Taylor, I think, spoke at uh, yeah, the yeah. Austin Film mm-hmm. Festival podcast on story, and she was talking about brought up Michael Clayton as sort of this outstanding screenplay, and definitely, which I absolutely love Michael Clayton as well. Just an incredible year for film. But uh, Deacons finally, finally, after years and years of amazing work, won for Blade Runner 2049. Yep. But I think really where he stands out is the early scenes in the film, the natural photography, you know, the, the landscapes as we're watching Moss do the deer hunting and he uncovering the the mayhem and the uh the cartel death the aftermath of the death scene and all of that that whole sequence is just incredible yeah another like one of the standout moments too early on in the film is after Shigur takes the the gentleman's car we sort of the camera sort of lingers as the car's going into the uh, horizon but we have this Sort of on our left side, we have a a barbed wire fence, and the road sort of snakes back into the horizon and sort of an S curve. And he just let you know 
the editing there just they just let that hang for just a moment mm-hmm. extra time to just one beat to really let that scene breathe and just display like the natural beauty it's very desaturated um, there's a lot of browns and i think that's kind of the color palette early on is primarily a lot of browns mm-hmm. a lot of beiges off white you know not a lot of color but still just amazing shots beautiful landscape um, have you ever been to marfa by no instantly no. no yeah until i moved here shoot until like maybe like two years ago i never even heard of the place yeah. i've always wanted to go but it's like a 10 hour drive or eight hour drive Dude, texas Austin. is so freaking yeah. big man so that's the biggest disincentive to to make that trek but it's incredible yeah i think the the furthest west in texas i've been is to fredericksburg Damn, that's not very. That's no, not very that, that, that's for like context for the people that are listening that maybe don't live in the Austin area. Um, yeah, it's like it's like an hour west of Austin, and <laughs> there's still probably another like eight hours further west yeah, before you can get out of the state. <laughs> before you can get out of the state of Texas, when you get into Houston, um, or when you get into Texas from Louisiana, I think like the exit is like 880. So it's like 880 miles that that interstate will will go before it ends. And they they reset in every state. So you've got at least 880 miles that you can drive on that one stretch of interstate and still be in the state of Texas. Yeah, forget that. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big fucking state. It's a big fucking state. The Coens love working here. I will plug that for Texas. That's my like, <laughs> source of Texan pride. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. They shot their first film, Blood Simple, I no, think, in, in Austin and the surrounding areas. So they have like they've they kind of have an endearing view of Texas, which is nice. Because <laughs> it's funny, I kind of think of them and and looking at the special features too. It's like they're both wearing cowboy hats and shit. And it's just kind of <laughs> like these two kind of Jewish kids from fucking Minnesota out here. It kind of reminded me of uh, City Slickers, like Ira and. Barry Shallowitz. Oh, that would be the that would be Ira the, and Barry, sort of the stereotypical portrayal. So there was just an interesting, I think, sort of. Uh, that's Stay. kind of the first thing that came into my head. It was kind of this funny like parallel between those, but the <laughs> Ira and Barry, these two man. guys, just out in Texas with with their cowboy hats on. Very, you know, these two very cerebral, just absolutely brilliant filmmakers out here in Texas, wearing their cowboy hats. Yeah, they're okay. Getting it done. <laughs> um, so there's a long, yeah, in that opening scene, some there's a long shot of Llewellyn tracking that deer that I really loved. Um, there was a great shot and reveal of Moss walking up from the perspective of behind the dead cartel member's boots, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, which I thought was a really great choice visually a very interesting you know visual piece there that kind of stood out for me um trying to think of some other kind of moments uh him being chased by the the truck at night with the with the the lights of the truck oh that was great too just the frenetic pacing of that scene and just the trucks kind of bouncing around yeah they can't quite control it i think you just show the academy that one scene it's like (laughs) all right we're gonna nominate him for just i mean that it, it was just it was freaking cool and it's just completely different than everything else that we had seen in the film where you were talking about like the landscapes and you get like a, a nighttime shot and yeah, it, it's, 
it's just awesome. I want to know how many takes it took to get that whole sequence done. Yeah. With the truck. It was wild. Yeah. It's one of my favorite shots of the whole film. And I mean, and it's, it's just, just a couple moments, but it's just so freaking cool. There's a moment whenever Shigeru is arrested at the beginning and he's sort of obscured by shadow to, to a degree as he's in the backseat of the sheriff's car. Mm-hmm. It was a great moment that I think really um, helped drive home. You know, this is before we see that insane scene where he kills him. Just kind of sets him up as this dark character, sinister sort of vibe to him. Mm-hmm. There's a really nice close-up later on in the film whenever Tommy Lee Jones's character is discussing. He's he's meeting met the sheriff or some law enforcement official after Moss has been killed. With the uh, the El Paso, I can't. Was it El Paso? I, think, I can't I can't I remember it was like exactly. The El Paso sheriff, I think. I think that was like what his credit was, but but I don't know. I'm but sort friend. of as they're talking, he's like, "Who you know?" He's like, "Who the who would be brazen enough to you know return to the scene of the crime?" And then the wheels and and Tommy Lee Jones's head start turning. It's like, holy fuck! I bet that motherfucker's there. Mm-hmm. So he decides to go back to the crime scene where Moss has been slain. And there's just a just a moment there. I think when he's waiting to get out of his car, just the way that the light hits him for just a you know just a few moments is just gorgeous. There's another sort of silhouette shot of Moss as he approaches. He's crossing the border and he encounters the three young men and he ends up buying one of their coats but there's kind of a i don't know a long shot of them and it's we've got this backdrop of this yellow light and they're all sort of dark silhouettes that i thought really was really gorgeous had a similar uh, composition as that Tommy Lee jones shot that i just referenced Mm -hmm. but i mean i think this is one of my favorite looking or shot films and particularly the early scenes, the landscapes and so forth. And, uh, I mean, Deacons just all hill Deacons. Dude. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. Like what else can you, do you really need to say about, about his work? I mean, obviously he's done a lot of this stuff for the Cohen since, I don't know, since maybe Barton Fink, um, maybe earlier. I don't know. I don't know if he did, Miller's Crossing or not, but I know that I know for a fact that he did Fargo. I mean, the, again, I'm, these two movies there there are parallels to the, uh, to these films, and definitely, and even just like you know the 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 way that they're shot and they're how the landscape of the movie is a character essentially, I mean, like the like the the Texas landscape and like the border you know the border landscape of this is a character in the film, just like the the region in North Dakota and Minnesota of, of Fargo are a character to that, to that film. So, but yeah, I mean, Roger Deakins, dude, amazing. Uh, I love the, the shot of the, the car accident at the end. I think is just another one of my favorite little uh, shots in the way that that's filmed. And then with like the cameras up above looking down, um, it's kind of like a, like kind of like God looking down, uh, like moment. And I, I, I love it. I just nice third person camera work. There. Yep. Mm-hmm. Just want to check in with you. It's, it's two o'clock. Do you need to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to need to. So, I mean, I, I, there's still some things I, you know, I will obviously want to talk about, but, um, unfortunately folks, I'm gonna have to leave a little bit early on this one, but I, I still can go ahead and uh, chat with for a little bit. Okay.
All right. What, I'm trying to think. What do we want to do in terms of time? Uh, I mean, we got to talk about some themes. I mean, that's one of the things that we uh, that we usually discuss. To me, the standout themes here are sort of again this f- battle of free will mm-hmm. and random chance. And I think to me that the tension between those two ideas or viewpoints is what the film is ultimately all about. Yeah. Yeah. Because we have Shigur, who is seemingly a force of nature, indiscriminately kills dispassionately without any type of malice necessarily. Like he's not, it's not personal really for him. Mm -hmm. It's just, he's a man, he's a man of his word. Yeah. What is that? That's a Joker. Joker, that's what it is. Dark Knight, a man of my Mm -hmm. word. But, which I think is pretty interesting there. Um, The coin toss, the chance, to me that goes to like this uncaring universe that doesn't really, you know what I mean? It's, and, and the car crash scene that you mentioned too kind of ties into that too because it doesn't matter if you're, in many ways, you know, Moss kind of understands that he, by taking the money, or even going back to give the cartel guy water. It's mm-hmm. like I'm doing something dumber than hell, but I'm going to do it anyways. Yep. Like he has a he has a code. Mm-hmm. He has a morality to him and he he's like, you know, I don't care about the consequences. I cannot my conscience will not allow me to leave this person and n- goes into it full well knowing that he this is probably a dumb fucking idea. Yep. But he does it anyways, which I think is I mean, it's admirable that he's that principled. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, there's a parallel there too between him and Sugar, and, and that that they're they're both men of principle in a fucked up way. In a fucked up way, Sugar is a man of principle because he promised Llewellyn that he would kill his wife if he didn't, you know, acquiesce and bring the money. Yep. And he goes to, and he lives up to that word, regardless of anything else. That's the most important thing to him is to to be authentic and to not go back on his code. Yep. As crazy as it is and as, you know, difficult as it is to understand that and the lack of maybe the difference between the two men is the lack of compassion. Although and I then again thinking it's like he doesn't want Wells and their and that death scene. You know what I mean? He wants Wells to die with dignity. I don't think he wants him to say, you know, make the offer, you know, you don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. I've got money or whatever. You know, even Wells himself earlier says he doesn't really, you know, he he has values that you would say probably transcend money or drugs mm-hmm. or whatever. Even knowing this, still faced with his end, he tries to bargain with, with an angel of death. Yep. You know, futilely, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And... So to me, that's the kind of this theme of like, whether you're a good guy or bad guy and that car crash at the end after um, Sugar ends up killing Carly Jean just shows that he's, he's, you know, tied into that same aspect of fate or whatever predetermination Mm -hmm. by the universe. Good, good and bad alike, you know, random shit happens and there's not a whole lot that you can do about it. Yeah. You know, it's all sort of this random chaotic chance, or maybe it's all just predetermined and you just experience it as, you know, it seems like chance to you Mm -hmm. that that coin 
traveled there since 1958. <laughs> but then again, that that makes it feel to me also that's predetermined. You know, that coin that he actually has has traveled there just the way that Shigur did. So in many ways, it's like they're predestined to be at that moment, to have that moment together. Yep. I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts no, that, on that? No, that, that's literally my thoughts. Um, so, I mean, again, you've, it, it all ties back into the idea of chance and, uh, what is it, uh, predetermination and um, um, free will. I mean, that, that's what the nuts, nuts and bolts of this, of this film, what the film is. Now, what I'm more interested in is how those themes tie into the into the the title, which obviously comes from like the Yeats uh, poem and everything. Where, um, and then I'm I'm you know I, I'm, I'm trying to remember everything from the book, but the the idea of what the what the poem is trying to explore, where the the film the the the, the book doesn't have anything, or the the poem has nothing to do with uh, chance or free will, but. Uh, the, the the poem for which the the book title is based on does so i'm i'm kind of interested to figure out where those two meet obviously if you're familiar are you familiar with the poem not really but okay I, I do have an appreciation for yates okay especially so essentially the idea and it kind of and it, it ties in with the the final scene in the movie uh where tommy lee jones is talking about about his two dreams. One, obviously, when he was younger, and like uh, now maybe mixing this up with what the book tells us versus what the movie, but essentially his father uh, gives him money or something and he loses it, right, when he's younger. And then the second yeah. one is his father is uh, riding ahead of him and he's got, like in the old times, like a, a fire and a horn and he's going um, to prepare the way. He's yeah. the way, the truth, and the light. Yeah. Um, and no matter what, you know, his father is going to be there. So the, but the, the idea of the, the poem, as I recall, is that in order for like the older people to escape or find, um, immortality or, you know, uh, for, or whatever it, it's, what is it? It's like the, the road to Byzantium or Byzantium or, you know, uh, however you pronounce it, but the idea of to preserve your longevity is to kind of seek out this this other paradise or or what have you and that's kind of where where that ties so when 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 looking at the the title i'm kind of curious to figure out how those themes kind of like mirror because there's nothing i mean Cormac mccarthy and and Coen brothers are far more intelligent than i but i mean there's there's a reason why the the title is what it is and the themes that are explored in both the, the novel as well as the film. So kind of the, the agony of old age essentially is what the, what the poem in essence is about. And so I'm, I'm curious to know where like chance and free will and predetermination meet with the, the idea of the agony of old age. I think maybe this here, I'll, th I'll throw this out there. And this is from the conversation between sugar and Wells Sugar tells him, if the rule that got you here led you to this point, what good was the rule? So to me, that's saying, you know what I mean? You've based your life on whatever rule or maxim or axioms that you're trying to live by, right? 
but ultimately it got you here. So what's what what was the fucking point of following that rule if it just got you you're gonna die anyways mm-hmm. in many respects. So it's you know, that's a very nihilistic interpretation, which I'm sort of partial to mm-hmm. in many respects, obviously. But uh is maybe that's it. It's just like in in many respects it's like you're if you're when you're encountering when you're aging and you're encountering your end, it's sort of like what you know, what good is it? What good are these rules, you know, for any of these characters? Mm-hmm. Because they're still subject to random fucking chance. Like, you like know a what car I mean? accident. It's sort of, or, yeah, or Moss stumbling on this money, Wells somehow getting involved again with Shigur just randomly. <laughs> mm-hmm. No matter what their choice, you know, all three make choices and they all live by it to some degree some type of a code mm-hmm. but the universe didn't really give a fuck about what your moral code is the universe is just going to keep on trugging along regardless of that and so maybe the you know no country for old men scenario is just like coming to terms with your place as you know just as a function of aging you're sort of <laughs> you're just the an anachronism in in yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's kind of a that's, no. that's sort of shoehorning this. It very well into something rational, but I, I don't know if I really articulated that very well. But just this idea of aging, it makes it somewhat makes your decisions irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because no matter what choices you make, you do get old. You do die. So what's the point of even having a you know following rules? in many ways, but yet the characters do. Right. And then, you know, Shigur holds himself up to some type of standard. Obviously, Moss does as well. Bell seems to have a bit of regret about what he's done. You know what I mean? He's sort of ineffectual. He doesn't understand what the fuck is happening. He doesn't understand the insanity of the world. Yeah, and he doesn't live up to this ideal of what he thought ultimately mm-hmm. and you know and kind of how the, the the final scene obviously where he's talking about the dream and you know where you talked about where some people are kind of mixed on how they feel it what i find fascinating what i find interesting is you know it is his outlook at the end of of the end of the film as he's telling as he's telling the story of his dreams but at the beginning of the movie, he tells you already that he doesn't know what to make of of, of this world. You know, I mean, uh, we're, we're the his story that he tells right at the beginning, and you're like, well, you know, I, I don't know what to make of it. So we're we're told at the beginning that we're going to see some pretty new world shit. You know, we're going to find some some crazy folk that we're about to track in this journey, and then they're all dead, and here he is. You know, once again, um, now exploring his own place in the world at the, at the very end of it. So it's just, but it's two different perspectives that he has um, when we're getting the little monologue at the end versus his explanation of the, or him telling us about his dreams, which by the way, where you said that some people um, are kind of mixed about the, the final scene, I freaking love the, the final scene and how the movie itself ends. I, I just think it's very, very beautiful and very poetic. And then, upon doing some digging and learning about it, like reading the, uh, the poem itself and like, Oh, okay. All right. This, this makes more sense of who we were actually supposed to be tracking in this film. And 
thus, you know, Tommy Lee Jones being the, the true hero of this story. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I think what it is is ultimately, like I said earlier, we are set up with this sort of almost in many ways, somewhat traditional thriller sort of genre film that gets ultimately it's subverted at the end because our, who we think is our protagonist dies off screen, which is in many ways unsatisfying to a lot of film, you know, viewers sure. and so forth. And then we wind up, you know what I mean? Like that there's an abruptness at, at the end of act two that I think throws a lot of people off, which I don't know. There's something about that unsatisfying ending too, that is also, I don't know. It's a, uh, it's like if you, you know, break up with a, a significant other or something, but it's a different circumstance where it's not like you're reaching the necessarily the end of the relationship, but mm-hmm. some other circumstances step in and you guys have to separate for whatever reason. So you go out, go out on that sort of high point, but there's no, you know what I mean? There's no, um, what's the word? Not resolution. Closure. There's no closure there. Yeah. Kind of the same same thing that happens in real life. It's like there's there's not always closure. Everything isn't always wrapped up neatly and tidily at the end of, of life. You know what I mean? There's more to the story always. Yeah. The it is story an interesting, keeps going. You know? It is an interesting take, though, uh, killing off your uh, your thought to uh, be protagonist off camera. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's taking what Hitchcock did in Psycho and then just saying, eh, we're not even going to show you the murder, right. um, the shocking murder. We're just going to go ahead. And, and by the way, he's dead. I think one sort of interesting counterpoint or nuance here is the conversation with Ed Bell and and Barry Corbin's character about uh, they relate the story of the Indians having killed one of their relatives early on. This is their kind of talking about going back to like the early 1900s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sort of that idea of, you know, this savage nature of humanity has maybe always been in existence mm-hmm. and we've just fooled ourselves that it's it's not or, you know, perhaps there, you know what I mean? Yep. Maybe there's a return, maybe that's the return to the savage heart of the darkness within each of us. And this time that Ed Bell kind of reflects on this World War II era um, is, and you know what I mean, it was just a, a fluke in many respects. And now we're really, the clock is being reset back to how humanity really is. You know what I mean? We had this brief moment where there was a, there was a God that guaranteed all meaning. We, you know, going back, we, we create God to provide ourselves with meaning. We destroy God. And now without God, we're sort of returning to that preternatural state mm-hmm. of having to take responsibility for our own actions and determine our own course throughout the universe. Now, I um, just because you had mentioned the like World War II, I can't recall, but I know that I know that it's in the book, and but I can't recall if they the part of the reasons why like Tommy Lee Jones's character is so I don't know beaten in some capacity is that in World War II, like his entire unit was like killed. I, yeah. I can't recall if they if they mentioned that in the film or not. They don't really get into. I okay. don't even think they mentioned that he's a veteran, but. Definitely that scenario in the book yeah. is present where he abandons his unit and they all, I mean, they all had ended up getting killed anyways. Yeah, and, he, and then he gets a, like a medal, right? Yeah. I mean, so he feels kind of like to blame. So which is kind of like, kind of fuels his motivation for trying to 
you know, not just be, you know, a, a sheriff trying to save, you know, a younger person, but there is something that you know, him wanting to save um, Moss and Carly Jean and whatnot. I mean, there's this added weight, at least that is kind of suggested in the novel that the film doesn't necessarily talk about. And it's not that you necessarily really need it, but it does help understand Bell a little bit better. I listened to a podcast uh, that the Partially Examined Life did. They did a reading of the book. And a very astute point that was brought up was, okay, so Bell was this World War II guy. World War II was this very, you know, it was very kind of, it was very black and white in terms of the forces of good and evil, right? Or at least whenever we look back on it, you know, we look, we simplify it. And then Moss, Chigurh, and Wells are all, were all Vietnam veterans. Mm -hmm. And this is the war where there was no clear good guy. There was no clear... It's interesting. Yeah. You know I mean, there was yeah. very ambiguous and really confusing sort of conflict where, you know what I mean? You sort of had to create your own moral framework to figure out how to cope with, with just that unease of not having this sort of black and white mm -hmm. viewpoint, which is, I think, ties very much into this idea of the death of God at, at that point. Yeah. A very Nietzschean sort of existential themes there mm -hmm. which i fucking love and eat up and i think that's no i, I didn't know that about you yet <laughs> <laughs> one of the greatest uh, i think both mccarthy and the cohen brothers those are consistent themes throughout all of their works whether it be you know ironically or comically with a nihilist in in a big lebowski or something like the man who wasn't there which is nihilist. literally a black and white <laughs> dark fucking Billy Bob Thornton vehicle, which was amazing. We need to do that film too at some point. Cool. Dig it. But uh, I, I know you have to go, so I don't want to hold do. you too long. I do. I just, uh, a couple final thoughts, if I will. Yeah, go ahead. Um, one again, wonderful movie. Uh, I mean, everything about it is pure gold. 2007 was a fantastic year, but I do want to go ahead and bring back how amazing 1994 was. These movies represented 1994 at like the 95 Oscars. You had Forrest Gump. You had Shawshank Redemption. You had Pulp Fiction. You had arguably the, the greatest Disney cartoon ever in The Lion King. Um, what else happened that year? Oh, shoot. There was a really great comedy. Now I'm forgetting. Uh, Quiz Show also came out that year, which... I think is a highly underrated film that I think has kind of been forgotten by time, but quiz show is a really good one. And I think the only, I think like the only actually did Woody Allen do bullets over Broadway. I can't remember, but I remember Diane Weist won, but I enjoyed that. That might, and if that was Woody, Woody Allen, that might be like one of two Woody Allen films I've seen that I enjoyed. <laughs> so, uh, What's your? Have you given thought to what your next film is going to be? Because we're on your. Next I know we're tackling on my, your number two. We're on my number two. I've got about thirty movies <laughs> that I've been thinking, and and I've just been like curious. Like, I'm I'm really I've turned mine into a genre base. Like my best my my the, the best classic or yeah. you know the best foreign film. You know, so I'm trying to figure out what my my number two is. I, for a second, I was like, well, maybe I'll do my best Coen Brothers film too. But I also concur that it's No Country for Old Men. My favorite is Fargo. But I think that uh, the Coen Brothers' best film is No Country for Old Men. But 
I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, part of me also wants to do my favorite scary film, but I'm like, I don't know if Cooper likes scary movies. <laughs> I definitely um, don't. Real life, yeah, this, yeah. This, these existential horror films or this, this existential shit is terrifying enough so yeah. that I don't even, I don't want extra fucking things to worry right. about or so, have nightmares about just the day-to-day grind of, like... Because I really love The Shining, but I'm like, no. Oh, dude, The Shining, that's one I will absolutely be... I fucking love... All right, the Shining, I don't necessarily consider cool it's not it's it's kubrick yeah it's fucking kubrick yeah okay there we go so my i'm gonna do my my best scary film and i'm doing the shining for my number two all right i'm i am fully a thousand percent on board with the shining because i fucking love it cool absolutely man i'm looking forward to that now damn you (laughs) all right rock and roll excited well uh thanks again uh we do apologize a little bit more abbreviated but uh yeah, sorry. That's it's my bust. I gotta go. Uh, I gotta go. You know, earn the paycheck for my right. baby. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for joining me, Andrew. We will sign off and and see you guys soon. All right. Bye now. Thank you.